Well, ladies and gentlemen, a uh, very warm welcome to what is the, the first lecture uh, in this academic year's uh, LSE European Institute's uh, Perspectives on Europe uh, series. And you're here because it's been given by no less than Gavin Hewitt, who has been the BBC's Europe editor since 2009, uh, during which time, by, by general consent, he has, uh, he has really set the standard for reporting and commenting on and analysing uh, Europe, European developments in all their guises. And we're delight we were delighted uh, to host the launch of his uh, latest book here at LSE last spring, Europe, the Lost Continent, um, when uh, Gavin gave us a barnstorming talk. So we were understandably keen to have him back to share his latest thoughts with us. Now, the paperback version of, um, of the Lost Continent, of Gavin's book, has just uh, come out. Um, and uh, you may have seen it, some of you, on, when you arrived on the table outside. Um, and I know that uh, after the lecture and, the, and our discussion, question session, um, uh, not only may you wish to uh, purchase a copy of Gavin's book, but he will also be here uh, to sign copies of the book, which will probably take place in here. Um, uh, so um, uh, leave that thought with you. Well, we like, as you've seen from, um, from the title of Gavin's lecture, uh, we like to set uh, Gavin the, the big existential questions. Can Europe reconnect with its citizens? Well. I guess Europe could mean several things. Uh, it could mean uh, the EU uh, and its rather unloved institutions. Uh, maybe we're talking about the governments of the member states themselves. Um, political scientists, as I'm sure most of you are well aware, for a, probably getting on for a generation uh, now, have been worrying about the so-called uh, democratic deficit, uh, the crisis of legitimacy in the European Union. And the periodic and particularly the recent eruptions of uh, some rather unsavory extremist, populist, um, uh, demagogic parties onto the scene, onto the European political scene, seem to confirm that there is, that there is a, a real problem here, something that continues to fester and to which no, prob no answer and no solution has yet been found. Um, one obvious question seems to be, does discontent only become a problem with a capital P uh, in the midst of a full-blown economic crisis? Uh, or maybe we're setting the bar of good governance uh, too high. Uh, since when in the history, in the, in the history of OECD democracies, can we think of a time where people are actually happy with the way that they're governed? Uh, isn't a state of uh, surly acquiescence perhaps the best that we can realistically hope for? Does it matter? Uh, aren't, and aren't most people, on a, perhaps on a rather small-c conservative worldview, happier to attend to their family, their friend, uh, their jobs, uh, rather than agonize or shout about legitimacy? Well, maybe Gavin won't recognize such a, a complacent picture in the, in the Europe to which he uh, bears witness so eloquently. But, um, but I guess rather than listen to my idle speculation about what he might say, we should listen without further ado to what um, Gavin has to say himself. Um, please note that there is a Twitter hashtag for this event. It's uh, hash LSE Hewitt. Um, and the event is being uh, recorded, and hopefully a podcast will be available 
um, um, subject to no, uh, no uh, technical difficulties, and there's no reason, I, I believe, to, to anticipate any. Anyway, as I say, without further ado, we'd like to listen to Gavin. We'll follow the normal uh, LSE practice of um, uh, our speaker sharing some thoughts with us and then, um, and then a full and robust question and answer uh, session. And we'll probably take things until about quarter to eight or so. So, um, as I say, without further ado, finally, I will leave the podium. And Gavin, we would love to hear what you say. So please come and take over. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Very good to be uh, back at uh, LSE. And also uh, quite unusual for me to be set a, a title to address. Can the EU reconnect with its citizens? And when I looked at this, I felt I should actually be writing an essay for uh, LSE, which should be marked uh, at the end of the evening. Um, this summer, in parts of Europe, optimism has blossomed. Just a few weeks ago, the German finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, a minister not normally given to outbursts of exuberance, declared the world should rejoice at the positive economic signals the Eurozone is sending almost continuously these days. Indeed, growth has returned, albeit at a tepid 0.3%. In Europe, there are statistics and the real lives of its citizens, and the two do not necessarily tell the same story. A short time ago, the Swedish furniture manufacturer, IKEA, decided to open a new store just outside Pisa in Italy. There would be 200 new jobs, and IKEA advertised. They received 28,600 applications. Recently, the Prado Museum in Madrid advertised for 11 posts, part of the team that would be overseeing the El Grecos, the Velasquez, and the Picassos. Not a bad job, although rather modestly paid at 13,000 euros a year. There were 18,300 applications. Outside Malaga, in the small Spanish town of Alameda, with unemployment at 50%, the mayor has taken to raffling local council jobs they are so sought after. Once a month, he draws folded bits of paper to decide who will get not a job, but maybe a month's work. Over 500 people so far have entered their names. And in Greece in the past five years, the economy has shrunk by almost 25% unprecedented in the modern era. You only have to pause for a moment to think, can you imagine what it would be like living in a UK where the economy had shrunk 25%? And this year in Greece, the economy is expected to shrink again by 3.8%. And for those fortunate enough to find work, the average monthly salary has fallen to around 700 euros. This is the reality in parts of southern Europe where unemployment, youth unemployment in Italy last month rose just above 40%. It is above 55% in Spain and above 60% in Greece. And herein lies the great disconnect. 
the will and determination of this generation of European leaders to defend the Euro and the wider European project should not be doubted. But the same officials rarely see the consequences of their policies. Often these stories from Southern Europe are dismissed as anecdotes or mere reportage. But what has been happening in parts of Europe is profound and goes to the heart of the question we are here to address tonight. Can the EU reconnect with its citizens? In Greece, thousands of people, many of them middle class, have become dependent upon food kitchens. And this is a European country. And one former editor, foreign editor of a Greek paper wrote, we're fighting to keep our dignity intact and to avoid the depression that is enveloping our country. We are luckier than the people who are forced to live in their cars. They park at a different spot every few days and usually rely on the kindness of strangers for bath and toilet facilities. The Greek Prime Minister, Antonis Samaras, told former American President Bill Clinton that Greece was experiencing not a recession, but a great depression. And the middle class, so often the bulwark of any democracy, has been squeezed. Tens of thousands of businesses in that country have folded. So it was not surprising 10 days ago that a major poll for the online discussion platform Debating Europe found that the majority of Europeans believed that the austerity measures pursued in Europe since the start of the crisis have failed. The survey found that 60% of Europeans believe there are better alternatives to austerity in Southern Europe. And those figures, perhaps not surprisingly, went up to 94% for Greeks, 81% for Portuguese, and 80% for Spaniards. Among those countries that have been rescued and bailed out, there is deep skepticism about the medicine prescribed, which is cutting deficits and reforming labor markets. And those doubts feed into a much wider disillusionment with the European project. A few months ago, the Pew Institute conducted its latest survey, and the Pew Institute does wide surveys, and they're well worth paying attention to. But in its latest survey of public opinion across Europe, it found that approval ratings for the EU and the institutions have fallen sharply in almost every country except Germany. In France, only 41% had a favorable view of the, UK, of the EU, and that is lower than the UK. The strategy for dealing with the Euro Eurozone crisis is carried out by European officials in the Commission, but its authors reside in Berlin. The economic powerhouse of Europe has shaped both the debate and the policies. Some time ago, there was an exchange at a European summit between the then French President Nicolas Sarkozy uh, and Angela Merkel. President Sarkozy turned to Angela Merkel and said, you know, we are made to get on. We are the head and legs of the EU. No, Nicola, replied the German Chancellor. You are the head and legs. I am the bank. <laughs> Power has shifted in Europe. Economic strength has made Germany Europe's indispensable nation. And at its head stands the woman they call Frau Europe, 
and her authority is now immense. Just after the recent election, just a few weeks ago, the German paper, the Allgemeine Zeitung, said her recent election victory uh, on this continent, everything will require the consent of Angela Merkel. And even Le Monde, recognizing that the French-German partnership, which historically has been the in engine room for integration uh, in Europe, no longer drives the European project as it once did. And it came up with this headline, Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, Chief of Europe. At the moment of her greatest success, however, she has been forced to negotiate, or is in the midst of negotiating, a grand coalition with almost certainly will be the Social Democrats. Many in Europe nurture the hope that this coalition will lead to a softening of austerity and deficit cutting. After all, the SPD had campaigned for a new Marshall Plan to help Southern Europe. These hopes may be dashed. Angela Merkel is a pragmatist, but she is also a believer. The morning after her victory, she went out of her way to say the course on Europe would not change. Her beliefs in root are rooted in what has happened both in Germany and in her former East Germany. 10 to 12 years ago, she said, we were the sick man of Europe and reforms helped turn us into an anchor of stability. She continued, what we have done, everyone else can do. And that is absolutely fundamental to her belief. What we have done, everyone else can do. Germany is reshaping Europe's economies in its own image. And there are several problems with that. Not all political cultures are the same. Political cultures continue despite levels of integration. And not all European countries at the same time can root their growth in exports. Now, the Germans, I believe, do not want to be Europe's leaders. They are a reluctant colossus. They would prefer to be role models. They are acutely sensitive to being overbearing. Their foreign minister, Guido Westerwelle, warned recently against what he called Teutonic snootiness. But they cannot escape Europe's judgment. And sometimes it is harsh. And sometimes that judgment comes from within Germany itself. It was Der Spiegel magazine two weeks ago which wrote this about Wolfgang Schäuble, their finance minister and one of the architects of the strategy for handling the Eurozone crisis. He is, they said, or they wrote, one of Europe's most influential politicians and one of its most hated. Many hold his austerity policies responsible for mass poverty and unemployment in the South. In Germany itself, they know what the risk is in having set out this strategy for handling the Eurozone crisis. By cutting deficits and slashing spending, the German government believed they were opening the way to growth and making these countries more competitive. But did they underestimate the impact of reducing demand as countries were heading into a downturn? In trying to save their currency, have they broken parts of Southern Europe? 
And then there's another question. The enforcers of this policy have been a troika of unelected officials from the EU, the IMF and the ECB, enforcing budget cuts and structural reforms on countries already in a downturn. And that leads on to questions of uh, democratic legitimacy, which I will come on to uh, in a moment. I should say here, there are some green shoots, signs of confidence returning, some signs that unemployment is levelling off, some signs of growth, of exports increasing, of primary budget surpluses. And if parts of Europe emerge stronger from the crisis, then Germany and Brussels will be forgiven. But if the crisis persists, or if there are years of stagnation, then many will ask whether millions are suffering because of a European dream based around a single and shared currency has turned dangerous. And without doubt, the Eurozone crisis has shaken faith in the European project. And without doubt, when we go to the, the question that we're looking at today, I think if there is one issue that has shaken faith uh, uh, in, in the whole project and made it more difficult to connect with EU citizens, then of course it is the Eurozone crisis. Now, not so long ago, Angela Merkel observed that Europe accounted for 7% of the global population, 25% of the world economy, yet 50% of global spending on welfare. What she was implying was that part of what defined Europe, part of its brand, namely strong welfare democracies, were no longer sustainable in their present form. And nowhere does this cause more unease than in France. It spends 32% of its GDP on public social spending, the highest share of all OECD countries. Its public spending, incidentally, is 57% of GDP. And it has responded to demands that it cut its deficit by raising taxes rather than cutting spending flying in the face of advice from the OECD and the IMF. And for those of us who visit Berlin regularly, it is clear France troubles Germany more than any other country. They judge Francois Hollande's first year in office a waste. They believe, and they still do, that the French president has shied away from tough reforms, most notably over the labour market and pensions. They see France as a nostalgic country, fiercely protective of its way of life. Yet in the German view, reform is inescapable. And it is often, when you are in Berlin, you get told stories like this. You know, the French Labour Code has 3,650 pages. Apparently, a further 200 pages are added each year. And compare that to the Swiss Labour Code. It has just 70 pages. Paris has only taken small steps towards freeing up its labour market. It will not increase the age of retirement and only a small dent has been made in reducing the expected deficit in the pension fund which is predicted to be 20 billion euros by 2020. President Hollande appears fearful of radical change and willing to confront his natural allies on the left. But, and this is the important point, his caution reflects a wider mood in France, a pessimism, a resistance to the changes that the EU insists on. Yet even though reforms 
have been modest, it doesn't seem like that to many French voters. In Le Monde recently, an article said the French people criticized the traditional parties for being deaf to the destruction of their daily life. And that's an interesting phrase. This economic insecurity may be acute in France, but it is felt elsewhere and is blowing into the sails of anti-establishment parties across Europe. In France, it is boosting the prospects of the Front National, led by Marine Le Pen, who has threatened legal action, incidentally, against those who call her party far-right. So she has broadened her agenda. The Front National is no longer just an anti-immigration party. She has tapped into economic insecurity. She says globalization has destroyed the jobs of working people. She feeds off record unemployment. And she strikes a chord when she blames EU policies for allowing thousands to enter France and links that to increased crime. It was interesting, wasn't it, yesterday, when in a runoff for a very small by-election, her party won nearly 54% of the vote. She boasts the Front National is now the main party in France and predicts that in the municipal elections, which are just prior to the European elections, uh, the National Front uh, will win hundreds of seats. And judging from the comments from some socialist ministers, they fear that too. Across Europe, anti-establishment parties are thriving. In Italy, Beppe Grillo's five-star movement won nearly 25% of the vote on a at the last election on a campaign to clean out the political caste in, in Rome. In the Netherlands, Gert Wilders' party, which calls for a block on immigration and a withdrawal from the EU, is currently ahead in the polls. And in the recent elections in Austria, there was a surge in support for the Freedom Party, which got nearly 20 nearly 22% of the votes. There is not much which unites these political parties beyond an alienation from traditional politics. In many parts of Europe, there has been a breakdown in trust between the voters and the centre-right and centre-left parties which have formed the post-war political establishment. As I say, these insurgent parties draw much of their strength from unemployment. There are 26 million people without work in the EU. The numbers of the jobless will only fall significantly when growth rises above 1.5%, and no one is yet predicting that for 2014. And there are disturbing questions that can be asked but not answered. How long will it take to make a serious dent in these unemployment figures? Where are the new jobs going to come from? Might Europe stagnate, leaving a lost generation? Some of these anti-establishment parties also draw support from fear about immigration. They claim there hasn't been an honest debate. Only this week, with EU officials talking of a duty to rescue and protect the migrants heading for Europe, Gerd Wilders was questioning whether this would lead to higher levels of immigration. And why should Dutch taxpayers uh, have to finance it? And as somebody I was personally down in, uh, in Lampedusa, these are incredibly complex questions. If you uh, uh, understand there is a humanitarian obligation to go and help and save people, and if you carry that out vigorously, will in the end you end up persuading more people to make the journey? And these are very difficult problems. And I have heard some people say that one of the crises facing Europe is actually a crisis of democracy. Can democracy save 
these very complex problems or solve these very complex problems and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. In many countries, there is a decline in membership of traditional parties. Voters have become political consumers, and they are more likely to shift allegiances if they feel ignored. And in Europe, there is also a problem of leaders who choose not to lead. I recall Prime Minister Zapatero of Spain saying, economic activity is not a national, but a European affair. Even if he was right, it raises the question of why bother to vote for a leader who essentially says the key decisions are being taken elsewhere at a European level. Now, at a European level, the Commission has taken on new powers in response to the Eurozone crisis. The bailed out countries have troikas shaping their budgets and determining their economic uh, policies. Uh, it is now the European Commission which analyzes draft national budgets before national parliaments and whatever your perspective is that is a huge intrusion into national sovereignty and the problem for particularly the eurozone citizens but i suspect for all european citizens is this it is difficult to answer often what should be a basic question in a democracy who do i hold responsible if i disagree with what is happening europe needs a culture of consent. It is worth pointing out, however, that even in Greece, 60% of the people there want to stay in the Euro. It is clear that some of this hostility or alienation from the EU would abate if growth returned. This insecurity, which has boosted these anti-establishment parties, may have a big impact next year. An important moment lies ahead for Europe. In May 2014, there are European elections. Since 1979, turnout has fallen steadily. I think turnout at the last European elections was only 43%. Yet under the Lisbon Treaty, the Parliament has much greater power. It has taken the lead in some aspects of financial regulation and on bankers' bonuses. But, and no Europe-wide law can take effect without the European Parliament's approval. The results of these elections have to be taken into account by the European Council when it proposes a candidate for the President of the European Commission. Whoever is nominated will need to have the support of a majority of MEPs. And yet there is a real possibility that next May we will see a European Parliament with many MPs who openly question the European establishment and some who will question the European project itself. Often the European elections have been used to register a protest vote and these insurgent parties are hoping they will benefit from economic frustration. Even in Germany, whose political class is so strongly committed to the, to the European project, its new Eurosceptic party, Alternativa for Deutschland, which got just under 5% in the recent election, only needs to get 3% of the votes to win seats in Europe. And a recent poll in France for Le Nouvel Observateur placed the Front National in the lead when people were asked how they would vote in the European elections. They were getting 24% of the vote. So to try and bring some of these strands together, so can the EU reconnect with its citizens? There is still immense goodwill towards the European project and the idea of being European. 
Despite shrinking economies and mass unemployment, the outrage on the streets has been limited. Angst over Europe's future is not new. The one-time German Foreign Minister, Joschka Fischer, asked, how can one prevent the EU from becoming utterly untransparent? Compromises from being stranger and more incomprehensible and a citizen's acceptance of the EU from eventually hitting rock bottom. What was interesting about that quote, it was made in the year 2000 and the challenge remains. The inclination in Brussels certainly is to centralize, but restoring trust may involve handing back some powers to the local level. The American politician Thomas Tip O'Neill once famously, famously observed, all politics is local. There is a growing and widely recognized question about democratic legitimacy in the EU. And that goes way beyond involving MEPs in choosing the next commission president. There may be a case for giving national parliaments greater control over EU legislation, as many are suggesting. Um, one proposal is to strengthen implementing what they call subsidiarity, what best can be left at a national level, by giving, say, 50% of 50% of national parliaments disagree with a proposal from the EU Commission, that proposal should be withdrawn. National courts could also have an enhanced role on determining the democratic significance of EU actions. It is, there is certainly a case for using the EU budget to promote growth rather than being designed to defend special sectors like, for instance, agriculture. The EU has to back transparency. I know there are complicated reasons as to why the Court of Auditors has not signed off on the accounts for 17 years. But as a public relations effort, it is a disaster. A more modest commission and maybe a more modest European Parliament. There may be uh, uh, a necessity for that. Why, for instance, get involved in determining the health benefits or otherwise of e-cigarettes or banning serving olive oil in reusable bottles. These are areas which attract great headlines, uh, but you do question why they get involved in these issues in the first place. In Europe, ever closer union is the mantra that, dr that drives so much decision making. Further integration is always regarded as a good in itself. The mindset, I suspect, has to change, and there are great pressures for it to change, to act perhaps in the interests of the European people rather than in the interests of the project, and they are not necessarily one and the same. In the end, at this critical time, there is one overriding question, and it is not about building fresh institutions, but it is quite simply this. Can Europe deliver? And in asking that question, there is no area where Europe needs to deliver more than over unemployment, and in particular, youth unemployment. And the stronger the doubts are that Europe is not able to answer that question, the more anti-establishment parties will flourish in Europe. Thank you very much for listening. Well, I think we'll all agree Gavin has given us a 
fantastic launch into our discussion. It was a really rich, somewhat sobering panorama, uh, fairly dispiriting one. But um, I think that uh, with the remarks on unemployment at the end, uh, it seems to me a rather important point to, to uh, what uh, the main public policy issue to which Europeans uh, leaders should now be addressing themselves and uh, who could quarrel with that. We have about three quarters of an hour, or a bit less perhaps, uh, for um, questions. Um, and um, would you like to cluster them in groups, three, or, or would you like to take them individually? Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take them individually. Yeah. Okay, we'll take them individually. Um, if you could, yes, indicate by raising your hand if you'd like to put a question. Uh, say who you are and what your affiliation is. Uh, please keep it short and sweet. Uh, please don't try to smuggle a second question in under the cover of the, cover of the first. Um, um, but uh, right at the back, gentlemen's caught, caught my eye. Uh, yes. um, thank you very much. Uh, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a self-employed consultant who's worked for the European Commission, including this year, on um, various mainly law enforcement and um, revenue modernization projects. And my question is based on, frankly, that I'm not an admirer of the bureaucracy. Um, on Saturday, the 1st of February 2003, when I was working in Bosnia in a European project, I noticed that immediately after our boss came into the office and told us that the Columbia Space Shuttle had been lost, I noticed the remarkable attention to detail paid by my colleagues to where they were going for dinner that night. Um, which I thought was somewhat interesting. The question is, um, in your informal discussions with politicians and civil servants um, in the European institutions as opposed to the member states, do you get any indication of where their sympathies lie between the uh, competitiveness and social welfare state sides of the debate. Um, I know, noting particularly your comments about the quote from Angela Merkel. In the last uh, two to three years, there is no doubt there's been real fear, I think at the highest level of the uh, European Union, as to whether they can hold the project together. Some of that fear has evaporated. Uh, one of the reasons it evaporated is the cost of borrowing went down after the intervention of Mario Draghi uh, in uh, 2012 when he said he, it, we would do whatever it takes to uh, defend uh, uh, the euro. So some of that fear uh, has evaporated. Um, but there are also some very clear-eyed European officials. Um, I have heard European officials who are absolutely committed to the European project say, you know, our social welfare system is not sustainable. Europe is not just talking to itself. It has to compete uh, with some of these emerging countries. And that will cause huge uh, unease and tension within certain countries. And that argument has not yet run its course. Um, as regards uh, competitiveness, and this is really the difficult question about the Eurozone, in, in, in my view. Uh, the Eurozone has made progress, but when you bring together such disparate uh, countries, in the end, how do some of those southern European countries become competitive? 
How do they do it? When you're inside a monetary union, probably the only way you can do it is to lower your labor costs, to reduce wages and pensions. And as soon as you do that, it of course provokes uh, a sense of alienation and sometimes some hostility which we've certainly seen on the streets uh, uh, towards Germany. And yet, on the other hand, I have personally sat down with uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, and he said to me, well, what's, what's the alternative? And what is the alternative? And that is very, very difficult to uh, come up with. Uh, and some of those countries are making some progress, but that route to become competitive with countries like Germany is long and painful. And what none of us knows is, are we next year going to be, if we met back at this time, saying, well, let's turn out a much better year. Growth is better than we uh, thought. Italy will be out of a recession. Greece will, uh, Spain, as, as, as its finance minister says, will we'll see some of those unemployment figures come down by March. In which case, we might say, this great, long, painful period for Europe has been worth it. But there is nobody out there yet who can tell you that that is what will happen. Thank you. Yes, another question. Um, gentleman over there. Could you, could you say who you are, please? Uh, Michael Williams. Um, I teach at various universities. Do you think there is a, a case for, for making uh, strengthening democratic accountability through an elected European president who would have the democratic authority over the Brussels machine, if, if you like? And that would perhaps create a European demos, if you like, if they, if they were voting for a European president. Um, as you probably know, within the European Parliament, there are four principal groupings. They're like parties. And what they would like to do at next year's election, and they have been given this opening uh, by the Lisbon Treaty, they want to propose a candidate for the President of the European Commission. Now, what will happen is that in the end, whoever they propose, it is the Council of Ministers who will put forward a name, and then, of course, the MEPs will have a vote on that. But there is real pressure to nominate by these parties a President of the European Commission, precisely for the reasons that you have said. It, will, it appears to increase accountability and perhaps will widen the European demos. But if they go ahead and do something like that, it begins to fundamentally change the Commission, which is seen as the guardian of the treaties and supposedly an impartial body. Because if they uh, essentially nominate a candidate, that President of the Commission could well be seen as a partisan candidate. And therefore, I think, uh, to my mind, that is not where if you like, the European space needs to be opened up. I think there are considerable problems in doing that. And in the end, say we ended up with, I'm going to pluck a name out of the hat, let's say Martin Schulz is the next president of the Commission who undoubtedly will be proposed by uh, the Socialists. Say that were to happen, it doesn't begin to address this question of who do I hold responsible who, if I truly dislike some of these policies which are coming on, who, who do I hold responsible? And, and it's, 
it is that necessity to try and root some of this in, in much wider consent that I think is where the challenge is, rather than uh, this proposal, which is certainly being discussed a lot at the moment. Thank you. Another question. Yes, the lady um, on the edge there. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Elizabeth. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, you were talking about the Eurosceptic parties, and they've obviously been quite vocal about explaining all the different things that are wrong with Europe and why we would want to leave Europe or stop Europe. But as far as I see, the kind of more pro-Europe parties have been much more hesitant to come forward and explain why Europe might be a really good project. Do you think there's something to be said for kind of an active sales pitch or PR campaign of sorts for the EU, either by national parties or by the EU institutions themselves, kind of as separate from the actual results that the EU obviously would need to improve? Uh, It's an interesting question. I'm instinctively wary of big institutions spending taxpayers' money in order to promote uh, their own interests. However, the the basic point uh, is a good one. I think certainly in terms of the uh, UK, no poll that you look at now tells you anything about what will happen in 2017 if there is to be a referendum here. Why? Because so many people have not yet joined the debate, and if there is a referendum here, it will be fiercely contested, there will be a wide range of voices, and I don't think wherever I go, there are a lot of people who, who haven't made up their minds. In relation to the European elections next year, which are truly important, um, I'm already hearing this. They are going to be defined by Europe's leaders uh, and European officials as an election which will determine the future of the European project. I perhaps don't see it quite as dramatically as that, but they will raise the stakes And there are risks in doing that, of course, because there are some people who perhaps have no sympathy or little sympathy with the project might want to join in on on that basis. Um, But in the end, I think, as I said in my prepared remarks, I think that the real challenge is, you know, when the European Union started, it was about peace. Then it was about... uh, standing up against communism, then it was extending democracy into Eastern Europe, uh, and then it was upholding these values which come from closer integration. There's no doubt that in the midst of this crisis, I think Europe has been looking for a narrative, you know, for a new generation. And a new generation doesn't have the same memory. It didn't necessarily live through the post-war years. It didn't actually experience communism. And that new narrative has to be linked in the end, I think, particularly to unemployment, uh, to research and development, giving people the hope that in a globalized world which is highly competitive, Europe can compete. And, And my own view is every directive and every piece of legislation should address the issue. Will this promote growth or is this here principally to perhaps in bolster particular institutions. But to your, to your point is that I think in many areas the argument hasn't yet been joined. And I think, as I say, whatever we, we might detect at the moment, I suspect that will change. Thank you. Yes. Um, gentleman, the blue shirt, yes, on the edge. 
Um, Donald Davidson, um, well, UKIP voter. Since 1992, so basically there's been a number of referendums where, of course, the people have voted no. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but there's about, you know, you talk about seven, let's say seven referendums, people voted no, and then basically the EU has just said, well, let's have another vote. And the most thing I'll mention is, of course, when the French and Dutch voted down the European Constitution, it was simply repackaged as the Lisbon Treaty and pushed through, of course, without referendums. So, I mean, I mean, so if you talk about the EU, I was thinking of the current Eurozone crisis and using legitimacy, well, surely there's this kind of underlying trend, of course, of the, of the disconnect of all. Going back years, as well, I remember Peter Shaw saying years ago, you know, but, you know, the political class and the peoples of Europe just, just, the just gets, gets what it wants, whatever the people think. I think in retrospect, <coughs> there are many in uh, Europe who believe what emerged after the French uh, and the Dutch uh, had rejected the uh, Constitution for something so similar to emerge via the Lisbon Treaty uh, has created a problem. And if you want evidence of that problem, you need to look no further than, than France. In the current debate at the moment over whether uh, there should be a renegotiation of the treaties, the Germans feel there may be some sense in doing that with one eye on their constitutional court. Francois Hollande, who was intimately involved in the referendum debate in France, absolutely doesn't want to have a referendum in France because you know, he fears, uh, particularly in the current mood in France, uh, that uh, there may be a no vote for uh, a referendum. But in the end, and, and I think this is more widely understood than it was, uh, the European project cannot be pushed forward by stealth. It has to be debated, and people from different points of view uh, need to be uh, engaged in that. It cannot be a project that just allows itself to be criticized as, if you like, the pet project of a European elite. And, and that, is, that is undoubtedly important. How that is done, I'm not sure I've yet seen uh, uh, a convincing strategy, but all I can say to you that in the you know, many meetings and things that I go to in, in Brussels, there is an, an absolute awareness that there is a democratic deficit, and it's not just people who may be hostile to the European project. I know people who are utterly uh, convinced Europeans in the sense that they, they want further integration also believe that that further integration must be based upon democratic consent. How you do that is still very much up, up in the air. Just uh, on that, uh, further integration, um, it's mostly discussed in the context of uh, a financial union which would need to be sustainable to be under, underpinned by an economic union, uh, which in turn would need to be given political legitimacy through a political union. Well, the contours of any of those unions are barely perceptible, <coughs> yet certainly, certainly, I mean, to an extent, some elements of financial union, economic union, no, political union, no. Um, and if you actually look, go through the actual areas of competence where the EU does not exercise competence, um, health, education, energy. Well, very limited. Energy. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, defence uh, and foreign policy. Um, you know, um, key things, pensions, welfare, and so on, things that touch on the lives of citizens. Nobody, to my knowledge, I mean, there are a few, obviously, convinced old-school federalists around, but one hears far fewer of them. Occasionally, will come Schäuble 
or Westerwelle from Germany, a country which obviously would generally support these aspirations, would have in the past, um, you feel they're just sort of flying a bit of a kite on their own. They certainly don't get the support of the Federal Chancellery. Um, and these voices are far, far fewer. Nobody's really talking about extending EU competence into these areas which remain absolutely central to the role of, of nation states. Um, so it's not altogether clear to me what ever closer union in the sense of deeper institutional uh, integration um, under the treaties, what this means any longer. Have we not reached a sort of a, a high watermark, a sort of plateau now where it's unlikely that integration will proceed much further unless we're going to be surprised by um, banking union and so on, which is still seems remarkably very elusive. But economic union, political union, it's still, I don't see it happening. I mean, where, where is this? So have we, have, we, have we come to high watermark? I mean, that's what I... I mean, I, I agree with that up to one particular point. What is the main reason that people vote in elections? It is principally about economic security and the economy. The big changes which have happened as a result of the Eurozone crisis relate to the economy and they relate to budgets. It is often said, and led to a certain event in Boston, there should be no taxation without representation. What happens over budgets matters hugely in a democracy. Uh, and the sense of uh, what sway or what influence ordinary voters have in relation to the running of an economy. Now, Certain things have happened as a result of the Eurozone crisis. I mentioned one in my prepared text that a budget is overseen initially by the, e, the European Commission before national parliaments. I'm not entirely certain why they did that, but you can see why that would worry uh, uh, a lot of people. Um, there are all kinds of quest, uh, suggestions about debt breaks, um, about um, uh, peer review of uh, uh, elements within budgets. And these are steps towards fiscal union. I wouldn't say more than that, but there definitely have been steps towards fiscal union, uh, uh, if you like, a control over tax and spending. But the closer you get towards fiscal union, the more you make the case for political union. It, it seems to me the two come joined together. And once you start heading down the road towards political union, uh, then uh, there are those who will make the case that actually you need to, in the end, have a common debt, common treasury, and you're not that far away from beginning to talk about the United States uh, of Europe. I agree with you, a lot of this has not happened. But undoubtedly, the story of the last two, three years is that steps, particularly for the Eurozone countries, have been taken down that road. And I think there is a, uh, still a fundamental strain between those who believe Europe will only achieve its, its historic goal by, in the end, becoming United States of Europe and those who say it can never happen because of history, because of the much-loved nation-states. And that strain is, is still there. 
Um, and there are also those who say that the reforms that have been taken so far in relation to the Eurozone crisis are incomplete. You mentioned uh, banking union. Um, uh, in, in the end, they're still arguing over a, a single resolution mechanism, over how to wind up failing banks. But eventually, I suspect, they will get there. And in that sense, then, if banking union in, in its fullest extent happens, despite the unease about, uh, from uh, Germany, then that will be another step towards this uh, uh, fiscal union and political union. Thank you. Yes, the gentleman there has been trying for a little while on the, on the edge. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Diocy. I'd like to congratulate you, first of all, Gavin, for being the best BBC reporter on Europe in my lifetime. I've been reporting on Europe since probably before you were born. Um, but I would like to uh, go back to the title of this meeting, Can the European Union Reconnect with its Citizens? My belief there never was any connection. That's because it's never moved on from being in the iron and, uh, and steel community. Therefore, there is no mechanical process, and I can understand your sympathy of not wanting to have institutions which are you know, spending a lot of money on you. However, there isn't a national government that doesn't have a process for communicating with its public. The, the European Union has no process. There's nobody in charge. And that to me, so it's being dispersed through rumor for, for national political reasons. And that, I think therefore, this is why when you ask people, are they going to be in or out of Europe and why, they don't know why. They don't know anything about Europe. They don't know what Europe is. So, do you, do you agree with, with, with something that I say? Well, I, clearly there is a problem in terms of developing a Euro, what they call a European demos. Uh, and, and sometimes it's asked, do people think of themselves as Europeans, or do they think of themselves as Italians or, or Brits? Uh, and the movement towards developing a European demos has been pretty glacial, despite uh, the best efforts. But you know, one thing I have noticed uh, in covering the Eurozone crisis is that even in those countries which have suffered some of the uh, most rigorous budget cuts, the loyalty towards the European Union and being in it has remained incredibly strong. And I mentioned about, I, I think the figure was 60% of Greek people who still wanted to remain in the Eurozone. And we often forget the role of history in all of this. When you are in Greece, it is easy to find people who remember the rule of the colonels. In Spain, it's easy to find people who remember General Franco or the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. And that loyalty towards the European idea and of being European, even though it doesn't express itself in, uh, I, I think, an, in, an increased European demos, uh, on the other hand, shouldn't be underestimated. And I've sometimes asked myself, why hasn't there been more outrage on the streets of Europe? Why hasn't there been? I mean, uh, if we go back in history to 1968, whatever you may think the reasons and causes for demonstrating then were. There is a great reason for going out on the streets now, and that is the difficulty of finding a job. And yet the interesting thing is, yes, there has been violence to a degree in, in, in Greece, some of very unpleasant, uh, and in some of the other countries. But when you consider the scale of what's been happening, it's been fairly muted. 
And I, I find that interesting, and I think part of that lies in even though there is alienation from Brussels and from the European project, there is also still a very strong desire to be European. Thank you. Uh, at the back on the edge, yes, Richard Bronk. <coughs> Richard Bronk, European Institute. Thank you for a, a wonderful talk. In, in, agriculture, mono, in agriculture, monocultures, a monoculture crop is a very dangerous thing. And a union is arguably stronger if it's diversified and has a number of different economic and social models, different comparative institutional advantages, so that different parts of it do well at different times. Do you sense that German leaders understand the dangers for them, as well as the Union, of imposing a single German consensus, a bit like the old Washington consensus, on the whole of Europe, imposing an economic monoculture in, in that sense, even if they were to succeed in doing so? Um, I think they are acutely aware, uh, and I detect no wish on behalf of uh, the current German leaders to impose anything. They are driven by what they see as the necessity to save uh, the single currency, uh, the euro. I think Angela Merkel sees saving the euro as central uh, to her legacy. Uh, and uh, they, 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 there is a great dilemma. Uh, and as I said, I think the problem comes is that you can look at another country and say you need to make your labor market more flexible, you're going to have to you know, cut pensions, you're going to have to do this in order to make your uh, economy more uh, competitive. And of course people don't like doing that. They don't like seeing pensions reduced or wages reduced. Or, uh, and of course that has led on the streets of some countries to be, you know, protests against Germany, and we've all seen the pictures of Angela Merkel dressed as Hitler, which is obviously absurd and uh, insulting. Um, but that is a risk. But as far as Germany is concerned, uh, and uh, Wolfgang Schäuble uh, said this to me in a, an interview I did, uh, did with him, was that if they don't become more competitive, if they don't bring down their uh, labor costs, and, and if you looked at the graph of what happened, say, between, I think, 2002 and, and 2010, and the way that German labor costs were like that, and, say, Spanish labor costs were like that, or Italian labor costs, if you are in an economic and monetary union, you're going to have to reduce those to stay in it. And that is one of the, the consequences of being part of a union. They can't devalue. They have to rely on what they call it internal devaluation. And that is very, very painful. Um, and I think the Germans, certainly from conversations that I have, believe they're doing the right thing. Angela Merkel certainly looks at what happened after reunification and what happened in East Germany. They, they are believers in it. But of course, uh, no people can be patient forever. And that's why I think in 2014, uh, the Eurozone in particular needs to show convincing growth. We need to see some of that unemployment coming down, and the Germans feel that very acutely. Um, as you said, again, I mean, the Germans have a, a very simple analysis, and that, that is that Europe will only come right economically if all the member states embark on serious structural reform. Um, the fact that most are unwilling to in any serious way 
would seem to suggest just a failure, sorry to use the cliche, but a failure of political leadership. Where is that political leadership going to come from? There is more or less intellectual consensus and political consensus that structural reform, supply-side reform, labor markets, pensions, and so on, product uh, markets uh, is, is imperative. Even the sort of center-left has sort of gradually come around to that, uh, that position, if with slightly less enthusiasm than center-right or liberal, or liberal parties. But broadly speaking, parties, they share the analysis, but they're still unwilling to get from A to B because it's politically unpopular. Is Europe suffering a massive failure of leadership? And do the Germans suspect that is a fear that that is the case? But who can blame them for sticking to their, their analysis, if you like? Is this about leadership? Certainly nobody, uh, I think no leader in Europe has really articulated convincingly what is at stake. And when I used the figures that Angela Merkel used about the, uh, the amount of global money spent on welfare spending, uh, and it was Europe accounted for 50% of it, occasionally you get comments like that, that I think do actually describe what is at stake, uh, that actually Europe's welfare costs are going to have to come down. And if Europeans want to be in a, a single currency, those which are already in a single currency, there are difficulties and, and responsibilities. And, and the coming together of those economies, which was predicted and expected uh, when the euro was set up, hasn't happened. And now it's happening in the most difficult circumstances, and they're being forced to try and become closer. Although I have to say that despite all that's happened in the last three years, if you look at, although some of the labor costs have come sort of closer together, there are still huge imbalances between those countries which will have to be worked out over the next few years. But coming back to this question of, of leadership, um, in the end, it is the responsibility of politicians, even at the risk of uh, losing office, to uh, tell things how, to say exactly how things really are. And I think that's one of the big questions in France. We all know how protective of the French way of life the French are, and all of us who visit, visit there might say, well, we quite understand that. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think uh, there can be any escape from the fact that you know, France will have to reduce some of its social protections, and that will be very painful, and that will require leadership, and I think certainly it's the view of the Germans that the current uh, French president hasn't yet shown that kind of leadership. Um, we've got um, seven or eight minutes left. I'm going to take two more questions. The lady in the blue, in the blue, um, top over there. Uh, the gentleman with the tie uh, there. Um, please, we'll run them together. Let's okay. them very snappy. Um, go. Yeah, it, it's going to be short. Um, it's Anna, and I'm a master's student here. Um, so to your, when you pre in your prepared speech, I had this feeling that you, your answer to the question is only a more intergovernmental EU can reconnect with its citizens and what I would call a weaker union, but I'm sure you don't agree with that. Um, but then to Professor Fraser's question, you said that you do believe in, that a banking union or a fiscal union with a political union is possible. So can, can you please, can you tell me what, what you see in the future for the EU? Okay. Uh, do I think it's possible? Uh, uh, is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. Okay. And gentlemen, yeah. Thanks very much. 
it's a similar question to what Professor Fraser just raised, which is the, the quote you gave from the German finance minister when he said, what's the alternative? Well, perhaps the alternative is to put forward an intellectually honest position, which is there are two alternatives. One is to have a closer economic and political union, and the other is actually to abandon the currency and give more independence to countries so they can sort out their economic problems. And is the reality that Berlin and Brussels political leaders don't have the political bravery to put forward either of those positions, so they just muddle on as they are now. Um, intergovernmental, uh, <coughs> should there be more, if you like, intergovernmental act activity rather than uh, purely at a European level? Um, I think there are plenty of people who believe that that would help with some of the democratic deficit, that actually if more decisions were taken on an intergovernmental basis, and certainly you can detect with Angela Merkel, she is quite wary of the Commission, and she undoubtedly believes in, and I think in more intergovernmental decision making. Um, the British government clearly feels more comfortable with that uh, than uh, with the Commission. but. In the DNA of those senior European officials is the idea of ever closer union. It's written into the Treaty of Rome. Uh, and uh, there is again a tension there between those who think perhaps it's most democratically effective and perhaps more effective to have more in intergovernmental decisions and those who believe it is the historical uh, destiny of Europe ever closer union. Uh, so there is a tension there. Do I, do I believe there will be closer, do I believe there will be fiscal union, political union? I believe in the attempts to keep the Eurozone together, more steps will be taken towards fiscal union, and I think we will hear more demands for some kind of uh, political union, and that will cause tensions even in countries like Germany, uh, which remains uh, wholly supportive of the European project. But I, I think in order for the Eurozone to survive, more is going to have to be done in the areas of, of banking union. Um, and perhaps, uh, as the financier George Soros said the other day, uh, in the end he said that uh, uh, more money will have to go from those richer northern countries to the south if this project is to be uh, successful. And he believes that what we have at the moment is inherently unstable. Um, so I think there will be, there will be changes but I think it's going to be very difficult to sell a political union when, when people still seem so committed to essentially uh, nation states and national sovereignty. The choice, your idea is there is a choice. And I, I have to say you, you are right. I mean, for the Eurozone, if, if it is to survive, uh, I think most people, even the British government accepted this, uh, uh, that uh, the Eurozone would have to become closer uh, and there would have to be more uh, a handing away of some sovereignty, which has certainly happened. Or the alternative abandoning the currency. There's no question that if you abandon the currency, there would be huge upheaval. N nobody knows for how long it would take, but I do know this, that at the height of the Eurozone crisis, and I'm talking about 2010 and 11, uh, Barack Obama was regularly on the phone to... Angela Merkel saying that 
if the Eurozone collapsed, it would have a huge impact, not just in Europe, but on the world economy. It's also true to say that even if a country like Greece uh, left uh, the Eurozone, there would be certainly months of up upheaval. Uh, for instance, its debt is denominated in Euros, so as soon as it left um, the Eurozone, it would have more debt, which then it would have to uh, somehow write off. Uh, obviously, its currency would be devalued. It would be very, very messy. Um, so uh, Europe, in a sense, is caught between, even if the instinct of some people is to abandon the currency, in reality, doing that, I mean, can you imagine all the transactions, all the, uh, the you know, even the machines which are, uh, uh, deliver euros, just changing everything would be enormous and would have a huge impact on Europe's economy. There probably would be a run on the bank, certainly in, in Greece. Um, so there are, there are no, for those who might be inclined down that road, I, I haven't seen any scenario that makes me believe it would be some kind of easier option. I think it would be uh, potentially cataclysmic. Uh, so what's left, if, if you accept that, what is left then is to proceed down the road of perhaps uh, uh, a deeper uh, economic and monetary union. Uh, but as I say, there will come a point when you go down that road, you have to begin talking about political union. Well, Gavin, you gave us a wonderfully rich half-hour um, talk to start with, and it just got better if that was possible. Really, um, a, a wonderfully uh, textured, interesting, shrewd um, set of answers to questions. Really, we've had a splendid uh, hour and... Uh, hour and a quarter or so. Thank you so, so much. Just to remind you all, and uh, I'm sure no one will mind my little uh, plug again, or at least my little innocent mention of uh, Gavin's excellent book, the paperback version of which is available outside if anyone should wish to purchase a copy. And I know he'll be very happy to sign it uh, sitting here, perhaps for the next few minutes, um, whatever. But Gavin, thank you very, very much again, and I'm sure we'll want to show our appreciation uh, to you.